for the most part, we wanted to give like three weeks to the whole idea of Christmas here in December. And so uh, last week, we, we began this three-week series. Um, we kicked it off with a message about the arrival of Jesus. And uh, we identified four things about his arrival from Matthew 1, verse 18 to 25. If you were here with us, do you remember what those four things were? The arrival of Jesus was a controversial arrival, right? The arrival of Jesus was a divine arrival. He's God. The arrival of Jesus was a purposeful arrival. He came to save his people. The arrival of Jesus was a prophesied arrival. It had been foretold in the Old Testament and even just prior to his coming, we see in the Gospels. And so those are the things that we learned last week about the arrival of Jesus. I, I hope you were blessed and, uh, and that God spoke clearly to you. And this morning, we're going to look at the work of Jesus. So we had the arrival of Jesus. Now we're going to look at the work of Jesus. And then next week, we'll look at the leading of Jesus. What a great way to launch the next year, right? I mean, we, we want to be led by Jesus in the year to come and, and beyond that. And so, but this morning, we're going to just kind of pause and look at the work of Jesus. And this message will not be comprehensive by any means. I mean, you could literally study the work of Jesus, all that he's done and accomplished and the things that he's working on now today, you could really talk about those things and study those things for all eternity. Um, the gospel is shallow in some sense, understandable by a child, but it's also very broad and deep. And then there's other things that the gospel, through the gospel that, that God has done. And so we could spend an enormous amount of time studying the work of Jesus. And, and in some ways, that's precisely what we've been doing in the book of Acts for two and a half years or however long we've been in that, which we'll get back into the first week of January. And hopefully in 2015, we'll wrap up that series, but I never make promises because, I mean, it's, right, I, I say stuff all the time and God's like, nope. And I'm like, okay, my bad, so I'll just shut up. But in any case, we're going to just kind of summarize his work today. We're going to be looking at, uh, I'm going to give you seven examples of his work. Last week, we kind of looked at a text, one particular text. This morning, we're going to be pretty much all over the Bible. So I'm not probably going to give you enough time to jump to every verse that I'm going to recite. But for the most part, you can just, just pay attention and try to jot them down as we go and uh, well, I already go really long in my sermon, so I'm like, Matthew 1, you know, and then, I don't know, but just, just listen, right? And you know you can always go online and, and listen again, and I, I will often put the transcript up too, so you can get it that way. But in any case, we're going to be looking at seven examples of his work. Well, we're going to be in several places in the New Testament and the Old, and I think it's befitting that I pray again before we enter this time of, of God's word and study. Father, um, we want to lift up this time to you. And um, I don't know, I guess as a preacher, I always feel the pressure of this time. And it really is, I think, at least for me, the most critical aspect of what takes place here on a Sunday morning. And that's not because what I do is more important than what others here do. It's not that at all. Um, I don't know, maybe it's probably one of the most fearful things that a minister can do, and that's to teach the word, because we're constantly under attack, we're const we have flesh, we mess up, we don't want to ever dishonor you with our teaching, with our preaching, and so it's just a, it's really a holy moment, and it's a reverent moment, and so God, I pray that you would fill our hearts uh, with the Holy Spirit, that you would give me the Holy Spirit this morning, um, apart from him, nothing profitable will come through this and apart from his work in the hearts and ears and minds <laughs> eyes of those who are here the our congregation nothing good will come out of that either if the holy spirit isn't at work in their lives um, it's only through the holy spirit that we have any ability to really discern and understand apply and live out the truth the truth it says in scripture is spiritually discerned and there's no other way to discern it except through the spirit with a capital S, the person, um, the you know, third person in the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, who is our leader, who guides us. And so may he be present here today and may he fill our hearts and open our minds and open our ears to the truth. And may he open my mouth 
to the truth. And may you be honored and glorified in all that takes place here during this time. It's all about Jesus. And we pray it in his holy name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sometimes I just feel like I could just keep praying and just not stop. You ever do that? You just, you know, you want to just pray. And the next thing you know, you're just going and going and going. And uh, it's an amazing thing. What a gift prayer is to us. In any case, I'm going to begin you with the first example of his work, okay? And thinking of the arrival of Jesus, thinking of the incarnation of God, the God-man, God coming to us, he came to do specific things and to achieve specific things. And, and the first thing that I would say, and do they have to land in this order? No, but this is the first thing in my mind uh, that makes sense, and that is that Jesus revealed God to man, that Jesus revealed God to man. That is part of his work. Part of his work is the revelation of God to man. Um, Throughout, and we've talked about these things many times, especially if you've ever been through our membership coursework, but throughout history, God has revealed himself to mankind in two primary ways, and, and we call those things a general revelation and special revelation. Those are two ways that God has revealed himself to mankind, to humanity. General revelation has to do with creation or what exists, what's been created. The universe, the stars, the planets, um, our planet, tree, just everything, everything that, that exists, everything that's created. We looked at in Acts 17 a while ago, basically all kind of testifies to God's existence. You see that over in Romans as well, in Romans 1. But in any case, there is this general revelation, which has to do with creation. Psalm 19, 1 through 6, and Romans 1, 19 through 20, tell us that God has made himself known to all men through what he has made, the universe, and that all men are without excuse. And what, what the text means is that God has made his power, his existence, known through what he's created thus giving man no excuse. What man ought to see and bear witness to when he looks around him is that he ought to understand and come to a knowledge of the existence of God. He, he, that's the way that his, he should work. That's the way that he should think. That's his response to what he sees. He, he shouldn't look at monkeys and think evolution. He should look at monkeys and think monkeys. He should look at the Grand Canyon and not think of, you know, 10 billion years of, you know, a river going down. He ought to look at all that exists, the stars and the heavens and all this stuff that's around us, half dome, everything, which all testify to the existence and power of God. And so that is one, that is a very, very important way that God has made himself known. And, And you know as well as I do. With these advancements in technology, you know, with the Hubble telescope and these things that, you know, we can get out and look further and further out into the universe and just have our minds completely blown. And the whole idea is that, you you know, you look at this imagery and you hear these, you know, expositions on what they're, you know, exploring and and finding out there. And and the end result should be there's, it's just impossible that this is a chance thing. It's impossible that this just happened to just come into existence on his own. And I love someone once said, because, you know, there's many people that believe that nothing produced nothing. And I don't know about you, but if you like logic, that's impossible. Nothing always produces nothing. And so the idea behind creation is that God has made these things. God exists. God is powerful. God is creative and these sorts of things. And so that's general revelation. God has made himself known to mankind through that which exists. Now, special revelation has to do with the supernatural ways God has made himself known to mankind. Special revelation includes things like appearances. God visited certain people in the Old Testament. God gave people visions. God gave people dreams where he revealed himself. And then we have a really, really special revelation of God, which is the scripture. And so now you have like this general way, it's like all that exists, and then you have this, this special revelation of God where he, you know, he visited people, he gave them visions and dreams and these things, these supernatural means, making himself known through all of these things, through these, I don't know, I guess means of grace or whatever you would want to call them. But I would say God's greatest special revelation of himself to mankind is in Jesus Christ. So, you know, you've got 
general revelation, all that exists, and then you have special dreams, visions, and those sorts of things, and, and scripture, and, and these things are vital, vitally important, but then you also have Jesus Christ himself, and, and it's so imperative that we recognize that. And uh, one of the great texts that kind of explains that, where Jesus explains that, is in John 14, 8 through 11. Now, you can turn there if you want. I'm going to read it. And, and just briefly give some commentary on it. But this is a great little dialogue that's happening between Jesus and one of his disciples, one of his 12, who happens to share my name, which makes him extra cool. Or a fool, I mean, you, you know, just depending on how you want to interpret that. So John 14, verse 8 through 11. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, you got to just think about this. This guy's been touring, you know, all of Canaan, the promised land. We call it Palestine today. That's not the original name. But he's been touring this area with Jesus for almost three years doing ministry. And he's seen countless miracles. Heard the, This guy was there for the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And at this juncture, this is what he asks Jesus. It'd be really, really cool. It'd be good for us if you just show us the Father. And so Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Man, we've been going everywhere together and you're just, did you really just ask me this? Whoever, ha, and he says this, here's his answer. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen God the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He's basically saying it's God who's been speaking through me and working through me. I've been revealing God to you through the things that I've said and through the things that I've done. And then he says in verse 11, John 14, 11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the things that I've done, on the works themselves. And so here Jesus describes himself as the ultimate revelation of God to mankind. You've talked to me, you've seen me, you've shared in ministry with me. And how can you possibly ask me at this juncture, at this moment, to show you the Father? I and the Father am one. And so... So clearly in Jesus' words here in John 14, 8 to 11, we see that part of his work, part of his coming and arrival, but part of his work was to reveal in his own person the Father or God to humanity, to reveal God to man. And so you have the general revelation, all that exists. You have special, the word visions and all those cool things. And then you have Jesus himself who is the very presence of God. He came literally to reveal God to man. And, and that's one of the things we celebrate at Christmas, right? God became a man and, and, and began life as we begin life as a little baby born in a poor little ratty town, you know, Bethlehem, which was nothing, born in a stable, an area where they kept oxen and these animals and, and this baby. The wise men came from a great distance to, to worship shortly after that. To worship who? Some guy who was born? To worship God. Jesus, as I said last week, arrived. His arrival was a divine arrival. It was God's way of giving ultimate revelation of himself to humanity and that was through the person of his son Jesus Christ who has lived forever and ever and ever has no beginning no end alpha omega so this is this is an incredible way that God has revealed himself to man and it is one of the things we celebrate at Christmas isn't it though that God became a man God came and, and, he, and he did ministry and he preached and he, he died on a cross and all of these things to reveal himself to mankind, to humanity. And that's one of the things we celebrate. Secondly, and this is so important as well, Jesus revealed man to man. 
Part of his work was not only to reveal God to man, like God coming to man to reveal himself, but also to reveal us to ourselves and to other men, to reveal man to man. Now, I love John 3, 1 through 3 for this, because this kind of summarizes who we are. It really does. And if you think about it just for a moment, men have, humanity has wrestled with their existence, with their purpose, with why they're here, who they are, how they got here, all of those little facets since the very beginning, at least since the fall of man. Humanity is still trying to figure out who we are, how we got here, and what our purpose is, is it not? I spent a great deal of my own lifetime trying to sort those things out and figure those things out. I got saved later. I wasn't, you know, a Christian in the womb as if that were ever possible. You know, some, some of you were born in a Christian home and, you know, and, and just raised to love Christ and to, in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, and that's all you've ever known. But, you know, I spent 30 30 years of my life just, just, just hitting it hard, man, and trying to figure those things out and, and trying to find them in all the wrong things. I think my purpose is to be high all the time because that makes me feel good. You know, I think my purpose in life is, 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 is pleasure and sex and all of those things just sort of ended in despair and more confusion. And really, ultimately, death. And so you have humanity that's trying to figure out who it is. And, 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 and in that pursuit of trying to figure out who it is, it's trying to carve out an identity for itself in the things that exist and in the things that it engages in. It just does not understand who it is and how it got here and why it's here. The pursuit of existence and understanding of existence and understanding of existence is actually driven people to depression, despair, insanity, and even suicide. It's such a a, a sad thing. Countless theories have been developed throughout the ages to help people cope with this, from Big Bang to evolution to false religion. And I think one of the great texts that really reveals man to man is John 3, 1 through 3. It says this, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. I love this story here of this, you know, prominent Pharisee who really wasn't supposed to associate with Jesus. This guy was a a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the 72 top religious leaders in in the nation, if you will, and and, and he was very, very curious about Jesus and meets with him at night and all that. And, and, and it just plays out like this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This guy was big time. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so based on the things that Jesus is doing, this guy's pretty good at arithmetic, he puts two and two together, and he comes up with four. Something's going on with this dude. He's been traveling around and, and, and healing people and, and you know, feeding 5,000 and then another 4,000 off a loaf and some you know, nasty little sardines. You know, I, those things are gross. Some of you, Bruce probably, you love sardines? Oh, that's just sick. My respect level for you just, anyone else here love sardines? Okay, I like her, but I don't like you, Bruce. I don't want to offend everyone, but man, that's just, as soon as I smell them, I'm ready to run to the bathroom. But in any case, you know, Jesus does these miracles and these things. I mean, and and here's his synopsis. Here's his hypothesis. He must have come from God. And and Jesus says to this, this to them, and I, I think this is amazing. He says, truly, truly, important thing I'm about to say to you, Nicodemus, truly, truly, always, this is a Jewish idiom. It means high importance. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. And so you're probably thinking in your mind, how does this have to do with who we are as humanity? It has everything to do with who we are. 
It has everything to do with me. This is, this, is, this is a great example of Jesus revealing man to man. What he says to Nicodemus is he doesn't give him an explanation as to all that he's done and why and all these things. He doesn't talk about all those wonderful things. He just simply goes right to the issue of his faith. He's got a crooked view of himself, Nicodemus does. He's a religious leader, so he thinks he does all these things right. and He's got God's favor and what have you. And he basically says to him, here is... The plight of all humanity. Here is, here is my hypothesis. You think that I do all these things and I came from God. Here's my hypothesis. The only way that you will ever see the kingdom of God is to be born again. That's the only way. The only way that you will ever see the kingdom of God. Meaning there is an issue and problem with humanity. Beginning with you, religious leader. See, men believe for whatever reason. That's what I'm talking about. Right? Your kids know. They, you know the humanity is depraved when you have a couple babies, right? But they do all some crazy stuff. Right now they're cute, but give them a couple years, you'll know what I'm talking about. I've got, well, mine are just eating everything now, so I, I know. But, but in any case, man believes that he's okay. Man thinks that he's, he's good. Man thinks that he's favorable. Man thinks that he's capable. Man thinks that he's just an all-around good guy. Women think they're good people. I work with guys who really don't seem to know Jesus at all. We've had these conversations, but they all pretty much think at the end of the day they're good guys. You know, and I don't know how they measure, I guess, you know, because I see a lot of really bad stuff happening there and things that are said, and I love these guys. I'm trying to show them Christ, but, you know, it's like every little good deed man does, he believes that he's, he's, he's just, you know, covered over the multitude of all of his bad stuff. And he's pretty much good, and he's pretty much capable in all of this stuff. And so Jesus just blows this to pieces. You want to know what your existence is? Your existence is that you need to be born again. That's your problem. You have a sin problem, Nicodemus. World, you have a sin problem. Now, through his incarnation, through his coming, God coming, and through his work, Jesus shows us what we are, Okay, that's part of it. He reveals man to man, but he also reveals what we can become. He doesn't just leave us in this condition. He doesn't just leave us in this position. He doesn't just leave us with, you got to be born again. He doesn't leave us with that and that alone. It doesn't end there. Through his incarnation, he reveals our true position, who we truly are, but he also reveals what we could become. Now, as we study the purposes of God in Christ... We learn that man is grossly, grossly, I know this firsthand experience, grossly ignorant of his real self, right? He is grossly ignorant. When we look at Jesus and the purposes of God in Jesus and his revealing and doing the things that he did, the cross, just imagine all of this stuff that Jesus did. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff. We realize that man is grossly ignorant of who he truly is. How can you examine the life and ministry of Jesus, the purposes of God exercised through Jesus and come to some sort of hypothesis that you're okay. If the cross itself doesn't exclaim at full 120 dB volume that humanity has a problem, I, I don't know what else will. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And so when we study the things that we're looking at here, we realize that we are, we're way off. We're ignorant of ourselves. But that also Jesus' mission, his work included a plan that would enable us to see and know ourselves as God sees and knows us. Now Jesus succeeded in doing this through really three things. He makes man known to man. He, he reveals man to man, us to ourselves, through really three things. His example is preaching and his miracles. Jesus' example, quickly, he, he modeled, Jesus literally modeled what a man should be. Did he not? Well, that's just for Jesus. That's just for Jesus to do that. You know, for me, it doesn't count. No, he actually, part of his purpose in coming and part of his work was to reveal through his own example what we are all to be. Every man, woman, and child. Morally perfect, upright, obedient, worshipers of God righteous you see in his example he shows us that this is how you're to be what you're doing isn't what you should be doing 
Who you are isn't who you should be. You see? Just through his example. Have we ever thought about his example? Do we not realize that he modeled what a true human being should be? One who loves God? <laughs> does this world love God? Not only does it, should we love God, but we should do it with our, our whole heart, our, our whole soul, our whole mind, our whole strength, and one who loves his neighbor as himself. That's the first and second, well, that's actually, that's the first and second table of the law. That's the whole Ten Commandments, the first four and the last six, all right there, wrapped up in what Jesus taught. This is who you're to be. My example should be your example. Part of his example, the purpose of it, was to, to reveal man to man. You, you see what I'm doing? You should be doing some of these things as well. This is who you should be. Makes a lot of sense when you think of the purpose of salvation and the purpose of sanctification, which is to make us like Christ so we'll actually do what he does. Right? That is the entire purpose of your salvation. We think that, well, it, is just, it all has to do with God's love for us. Well, God loves you. It all has to do with his grace, yeah. And there's a purpose behind your salvation, and that's to make you like Jesus. What about Jesus' preaching? This is another way where he revealed man to man. Jesus also taught, not only did he model perfection and righteousness and obedience and these sorts of things and true worship, heart, soul, mind, strength, he also taught these things. One point he said, be perfect. Teleos, mature. Be perfect. And not only did he, did he model perfection in these sorts of things, moral perfection and uprightness and all this stuff, righteousness, obedience, all of this stuff. He taught all of these things. But he also taught what men actually are. It's as if in his teaching it is, this is who you should be. You see my example, and I'm illustrating it to you through my sermons, but this is who you actually are. Instead of, instead of you know, being morally perfect and upright and obedient and righteous and worshipers, that's not what you are. You're sinners. You're sinners. Why else did he say you must be born again? He even used people around him like the religious Pharisees to illustrate our false motives, corruption, and depravity. The most religious people in the world were the best object lesson you could possibly give to the Lord Jesus to use to show us that even the ones who think they're perfect are incredible. The only ones he had harsh words for in the Gospels were them, the religious types. And he used their traps and their words and their plots to expose hypocrisy and to expose human depravity and human nature. So through his example, he revealed man to man. Through his preaching, he revealed man to man. And even through his miracles, the miracles of Jesus ultimately validated his example in preaching. And that's how the miracles, like, you know, when you're saying all these things, Jesus, and, and then you do a miracle to show that you have divinity, that you are God, that you have divine authority, that's just like putting a cherry on top of the Sunday. You say all these things, you know, like we're always talking about how we should preach the gospel always, but we should also model it. We should also live it so that we can show people we actually believe what we're saying and that what we're saying is true. And, and in a sense, that's what Jesus did with the miracles. His miracles were there for the purpose of authenticating his example that he lived out physically and through, you know, for his preaching. His miracles provided physical proof to who he was to what he did, and to what he said. Ultimately, through his example and through his preaching and through his miracles, he revealed man to man. And then when we look over at John 3, 1 through 3, we realize that it ain't pretty for men. Men aren't righteous. Men aren't without sin. Men really aren't worshipers. They're worshipers, but they ain't worshipers of God. 
They worship the creation. They don't worship God. Romans 1. He showed us what we should be, perfect, sinless children of God, and he showed us what we actually are, imperfect sinners estranged from God, apart from God. And he revealed that the only way back, the only way to break the estrangement, the only way to deal with sin, the only way to be restored is by being what? Born again. Which is what? You read a little further, it's the Spirit's work of repentance and faith in our hearts. He revealed man to man. And Jesus, thirdly, rescues or redeems man, or redeemed man, if you will. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, when we read this last week, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This just correlates perfectly with the reason why he came, which was to save his people. We need to know right now, friends, that Jesus Christ is man's redeemer, his savior. The truth is implied even in his name. The name Jesus actually means savior. That's what Jesus means. This is why the angel instructed um, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, to name him Jesus in Matt 1.21. We read that last week. And this is why the angel also said, Jesus will save his people from their sins. We covered that last week as well. Jesus himself testified to his purpose as the redeemer. He said in Luke 19.10, for the son of man, and speaking of himself, came to seek and to save that which was lost. The awful state of the world of mankind necessitated the coming of the Redeemer since there could be no hope of deliverance apart from him. The character of God, which is righteousness, absolute and uncompromising, demands that every sin, every sin be dealt with. Now, while God is merciful gracious and slow to anger, forgiving iniquities and transgressions, uh, uh, forgiving iniquities and transgressions, he will by no means pardon the guilty. We see that in Exodus 34, 7. While God is love, God is also holy and righteous, so holy that he will not look upon evil and that which is wrong, Habakkuk 1, 13. His righteousness demands that every sin must be dealt with impartially. In order to be true to himself, God had to deal with the problem of sin. In order to deal justly and at the same time mercifully, someone had to suffer the death penalty for the sin of the world. In the person of Jesus Christ, God solved the problem of the eternal well-being of the sinner. He sent his son to die as the sinner's perfect substitute and thereby redeemed the sinner. Man was lost to God in heaven and God's purpose and redemption could be realized only through the incarnation of the son of God. For the son of God incarnate is the connecting link bringing together God and sinful man. The sinner's relation to Christ is vital. Christ became a man that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Hebrews 2.9. The word, who is the eternal son of God, we see that in John 1, became flesh and was obliged to be made in the likeness of man in order to redeem him. Christ defined the purpose of his work when he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Mark 2.17. There is no implication in these words that there is a sinful class of men who need repentance and another righteous class who do not. Nor is there a suggestion that there are righteous ones. For Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. Had there been righteousness in the human heart, there would have been no need for Jesus to come and to do his work. 
In other words, if men could make themselves righteous on their own through obedience or what other means, any other means, Jesus would not have ever come and did what he did. And what did he do? How does he redeem men or how did he redeem his people? How has he made a way for sinners to be saved, to be born again in a sense? We know that's the Spirit's work, but listen. A, how did Jesus make this a possibility and a reality? Because it's not just a possibility to the world. It is a reality to a group. Jesus, A, lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law. He did what we could never do. We're all sinners and lawbreakers. Some of you broke the law just by getting here a little bit quicker than normal this morning. Well, that's not one of God's laws. Well, speeding isn't, but it's definitely a law of the land, and we're supposed to obey those laws too. We're all sinners and lawbreakers in a sense. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken the commandments, if you will. We've all lied. Who hasn't lied in this room? Probably those little, little McNuggets over there probably haven't lied yet. They will. She's thinking, they just called my kids McNuggets. Those are big McNuggets. They're cute. I have no idea where that stuff comes from. It just comes. And, and it's the part that's not in spirit. Seriously, we've all lied. We've all committed adultery. You know, everyone post-pubescent, I don't know if that's the right word, but after puberty is a sexual sinner. Once you hit puberty, that's it. That's where you begin to think things and you now wrestle with lust and these sorts of things. Everyone post-puberty is a sexual sinner. And we put such a it just, it kills me that we put such a high emphasis on homosexual sin like it's a, in a class of its own. Every person after puberty is a sexual sinner. And a homosexual is just a sexual sinner like you. Yeah, I don't like that sin. I mean, if I like sins, I certainly think that one's more grievous and I judge things a certain way and all that. But the reality of it is it's sexual sin, just like when you lust after a lady or a guy, just like when you fornicate, some of you have done that. I did that a lot. That's sex out of marriage. I, that was me before I got saved and before I got married. Doesn't mean that I didn't think about it a lot, though, even while I was married before I was saved. It's something that we all wrestle with today when we talk about lust. But every person has lied, every person has lusted, every person has stolen something. Something. It was just a pen. Guilty. Every person is coveted. Don't tell me you've never looked at what your neighbor has and say, man, I wish I had a ski boat like that. And then maybe try to figure out a way how you could get yourself on that boat every weekend at Don Pedro, right? And somehow maybe get it into your driveway. Every one of us has blasphemed. You've never taken God's name in vain. You've never attributed something that God didn't do to him. Like when you take something that happens in the world, I oh, God, that's blasphemy, blasphemy, et cetera, et cetera, right? We're all lawbreakers. We're all guilty. But the fact of the matter is Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law. He did what we could never, ever, ever do. He never sinned, he never disobeyed, and he was tempted in every way that we are. But he never gave in and he never broke any of God's laws. B, Jesus earned our righteousness. You and I are unrighteous as sinners. And every deed done apart from faith in Jesus Christ is a sin and filthy rag before God. You and I do not have what it takes to generate the kind of righteousness that God requires for relationship with him or entry into his kingdom. Perfect obedience to God's laws is what produces the righteousness that God requires. Are any of us capable of perfect obedience to God's laws? Heavens no. We can't even harness our motives half the time, right? We go to do a good thing, but we've got an ill or poisoned or self-serving motive behind it, right? 
happy wife, happy life. If I can just keep my wife happy, then my life will be good. Instead of just serving her and, and, and wanting to make her happy and wanting her to have joy and wanting to serve her because you're serving Christ, the motive is that you want her to be happy, you want God to be pleased and glorified. No, the reason so often us guys work to make our wives happy is so that our lives won't be hell. You know, dark, you guys, and anyone here that say, no, that's not me, I'm just serving Jesus. I'll slap you. <laughs> you ain't just serving Jesus. You know darn well some of the times you do. And don't tell me that marriage isn't about compromise. You know how many gifts I bought for my wife so I could get that other gift? Right? I love you. It's Christmas. We're going to worship. I give her this and I'm hoping there's an 18 volt DeWalt under the tree as payment rendered. I've bought her tools saying you need this. (laughs) And she's like, I don't need that. Well, I guess I'll have to use it. <laughs> I want you to be more, you know, self-sufficient around the house and more handy. Yeah, right. Buy her a lawnmower. And she'd say, you better get me a riding one that has a Cadillac emblem on the front of it. <laughs> Even our motives are tainted. Our motives, when we go to do good things and good deeds, even our motives get in the way and we're, we're doing things for self-serving reasons, right? When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Let's make mama happy. Why? So we can be happy. As sinners, there's no way around this stuff. It's who we are and it's what we do. Just period. That's just all there is to it. It's what, who we are and what we do. Why? Because sin affects everything, every aspect. It has literally ruined any chance of us ever obeying God's law perfectly, right? With the right motive. And let's not talk about just obeying the law perfectly. Let's talk about motive behind it because that's added to the perfection of it. Any one of us can set out in the next week to try to do the Ten Commandments and live those things out. But the reasoning behind what we're trying to do is what counts. It's always motive with God. It's always attitude with God, not just doing the stuff. Sin affects everything and has literally ruined any chance of obeying God's laws perfectly and earning the kind of righteousness we need. But Jesus wasn't like us in this regard. He did what we could never do. He obeyed and earned righteousness for us. And then he imputes, he gives, he credits his righteousness to those who repent and believe the gospel. And so you go from not having any righteousness, not even a shred, to being fully righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ through repentance and faith. And now you're acceptable, adoptable to God. Now you possess the righteousness that is required to see the kingdom of God and to dwell there forevermore. It's beautiful stuff. See, Jesus died in our place and paid for our sins. You know, God created humanity to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But humanity committed the highest act of divine treason by forsaking the creator, and I alluded to this earlier, to worship the creation. Because of this, humanity owes God for its sin and will receive its due penalty, which is death. The fact of the matter is, is that humanity is bankrupt. Humanity does not possess the kind of currency that God requires for compensation. God requires blood, but not the blood of bulls or sinners. The blood of bulls was temporary through that sacrificial system. And the blood of sinners is worthless. It's tainted. It's poison. It's toxic. Sin just courses through our blood in our veins. And so our blood does not, it it can't merit anything. It, It doesn't have any value, no intrinsic value. But Jesus died on the cross vicariously in our place to pay our penalty and debt to God with his own blood. And this is why Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist's just famous statement. His bloody sacrifice, 
The spilling of his blood was completely sufficient and acceptable to God the Father. Payment rendered. Done. D, Jesus rose from the grave. It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can have eternal life or that salvation is eternal. The resurrection of Jesus Christ literally proves the reality of eternal life. Um, The body he received at resurrection is incorruptible and fashioned to last forever. It is an eternal body. And those who are in Christ will receive a body like his in the future, the day of resurrection. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, the salvation, the process of salvation, the way that it was being worked out would have been incomplete and we would still be in our sins and ultimately doomed. But he did rise from the dead on the third day after his death on the cross. And because of that, we can have eternal life in him. That we will actually rise and dwell forever and ever and ever with Christ. That is is the way that he redeems. It's through those things. And is it, there are more? Oh yeah, heaven forbid. There's tons. There's so many facets to it. We could talk about all of the doctrines and those things. But that is it. The Apostle Paul, um, he basically summarized the way of salvation, which is really the gospel. That's what we call it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's it. It's the li- and I add life to it because we always miss that. We always talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But his life, through his living, he earned our righteousness. So it's important to recognize his living, his life, and his death where he paid for it. And through his burial where he stuffed our sin away and hid it. It's gone. And then in his resurrection where he rose victoriously for us. Number four, Jesus defeated death and the devil. This is part of his work. One of the things that he did was he defeated death and the devil. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus took from the devil the power of death. Death no more holds its lethal grip upon the believer. Although death has held sinners in bondage ever since the severing of the life cord between God and man at the fall, the appearing and work of the Lord Jesus has broken its grip. Hebrews chapter 2 illustrates this really, really well. In verse 9, it says, Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, came to taste death for all men. We read that earlier. And then in verses 14 through 15, it says he partook of death so that he could overcome it and defeat the one who holds power over it, the devil. Beautiful, beautiful text that just illustrates how he defeated death and the devil. 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10 also speaks of this. While God is merciful, gracious, and slow to anger, forgiving iniquities and transgressions, he will by, oh, wait a minute, I'm reading the wrong part. I'm sorry. I went back a page. To Timothy, it says the Savior appeared for the purpose of abolishing death so that, he would, so that he could bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, that's what that passage points to. Through the work of Jesus in his resurrection, we have been given victory over death and victory over the devil. We remember that text, and I remember, um, I think Stephen, uh, Steve Cook, you might have painted something that said this, where, oh, where? Remember, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Did you paint that, or did somebody else paint that back in the day? That's, that's it. I love that quote, right? That's right. Where, O oh, where, O oh, death, is your sting? And then think about it in terms of this. Who shall make an accusation against us? See, death has no sting for the believer, and there is no accuser any longer. He's been subdued. He's been conquered. He's been defeated. He's been dealt with. Death and the devil have been defeated. Although our bodies will fail and come to an end in this life, our souls will be joined with the Lord forever. And on resurrection day, we will receive new glorified bodies which will never experience physical death again. Now, I'm a firm believer in these following statements. Christians give way too much credit to the devil today. Way too much. They blame much of what happens to them on the devil. They say the devil is winning 
You know, something's happening in my family and, and the devil is winning in my family or somebody, a relative you know, passes away and, and then somebody exclaims, the devil won that one. You've heard these things. The devil is screwing up my life. The devil made me do it. That's a huge one. People speak of satanic, I hear this in the church all the time, they speak of satanic strongholds. I have yet to find biblical support for a satanic stronghold. It seems to fit into the charismatic schema which is prevalent in our community and in this world. The truth is satanic strongholds don't correlate with scripture at all. Especially passages like John 16, 11 and Revelation 20, verse 10, which say that Satan is doomed because he has been judged and sentenced to death. Now, supporters of this view, the satanic stronghold view, and I don't want to go off too much on a tangent, but I think it's important for us to know that there, I don't think these things are out there. And I think that, you know, people say this when they see really, really evil and wicked things happening in certain regions of the world, and they say that's a satanic stronghold. No, that's a place where there's a whole lot of sinners who don't love Jesus, who are killing each other and hurting each other and sinning. Doesn't mean that there isn't demonic influence there, but this idea that there's these strongholds throughout the world, I just don't think there's scriptural support, and they build on 2 Corinthians 10, 4, which says, says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And so there's the idea. But strongholds here has to do with human ideology, human wisdom, human logic. It doesn't have to do with the devil in context. And so we've got to just get this down. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the power and dangerousness of the devil. He is devil. He is, he is the devil, but he is dangerous. But we give him far too much Credit, And I love Colossians 2.15, which says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And who is he speaking of in that text? President Obama? No. He's talking about the devil and the demons. That's the reference. Death and the devil have been defeated. They're done. They're doomed. They've been judged and sentenced to death. Revelation 20. It's amazing. Five, Jesus rescues the whole creation. You've heard over and over, Jesus must become your personal Lord and Savior, and there is truth to that, but we tend to think of salvation as being, or rescue or redemption, as being a completely personal thing for individuals, and we don't think of the Redeemer's work in the rest of creation. Though the salvation of man was God's chief concern, his plan was never limited to the world of mankind. When Adam and Eve sinned, creation literally fell into sin with them. Romans 8, 20 through 22 says, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Adam and Eve thrust the entire creation into sin, into absolute turbulence. And you just think about it. Before Adam and Eve sinned, there were no savage beasts. There were no desert wastelands. There were no thorns and thistles. But when they fell, when they sinned, all creation fell with them. Those things came up in ways, those are God's, that's God's curse on humanity. Thorns and thistles and these sorts of things. And all creation lies in hope or expectancy of a rescue from present corruption and of deliverance to that place that God had given it in the beginning. Nature is now under the curse of sin, groaning and travailing in pain. It is not what it was at first, nor is it now what it will be when Jesus returns to what? Put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that Jesus has come and purchased redemption by his death at Calvary, the whole creation must be rescued from the curse and restored to its original state. Passages like Isaiah chapter 11 verse 6 point to the future state of creation. 
because of the work of Jesus and his redeeming all of creation, some of the fruit of it is the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. What happens when wolves get around lambs now? It's meal time. And the leopard shall lie down with a young goat. What do leopards do to young goats today? It's dinner time. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf, that's even an extra special meal today, all of these things. And a little child shall lead them. Can you imagine a little child leading a lion? You see, in our current state, I mean, Jesus literally, when he came, he came to begin the process of redeeming all of creation. And the outcome is that there will be peace and unity amongst all the species and humanity. There is a full restoration coming. It really features two stages. Stage one has to do with the rescue of his people. And stage two has to do with the rescue of creation. And you better believe that Jesus will finish what he started, not only in you if you're a believer, but also in other believers and in all of creation. There is coming a day where it will all be redeemed and rescued. That's part of his work. It's amazing. Six, Jesus restores Israel. Any reader of the Old Testament cannot escape the clear teaching that the Messiah was promised to Israel. Of this, the prophet spoke and wrote, the Jew had, you know, he had great advantages. Unto them were committed the oracles of God, Romans 3, 2. Theirs was the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, Romans 9, 4. None can deny that from the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to the Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, authority in the earth and divine representation was vested in the Israelite or Jew. It is common information that since the overthrow of Jerusalem and the transfer of dominion in the earth to the Gentiles, Israel as a nation has not held authority in earth for a very long time now. But when Jesus came, when he, Jesus actually came, he came unto his own and his own received him not. John 1, 11 and 14. The Jews actually exclaimed of Jesus, we will not have this man to reign over us, Luke 19.4. So Jesus came to restore Israel, but Israel rejected him. And what did Jesus do in response to their rejection? He set them aside. Matthew 20, verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. After his resurrection, Jesus revealed to the apostles this mystery. No longer did Israel have priority on the truth, but the message was to be spread abroad to every creature. And during the present dispensation of grace, God would visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And we studied that in Acts 15, 14. Today, Israel is still set aside, but only temporarily. The Apostle Paul clarified this in Romans 11. In verses 1 and 2, he wrote, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And in verse 25, he wrote, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. National restoration and national regeneration for the Jew are a definite part of the plan of God and work of Jesus. He is going to restore Israel. He's already began that process. We must know that Israel is not beyond recovery. She is not irretrievably lost. By her fall, the whole world has been blessed with the message of salvation. A national tragedy resulted in an international triumph. The Jews may live in darkness now, but they have a very, very bright future ahead of them. Romans eleven twenty six to 27 says, And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Who's the deliverer? Jesus, he is coming to rescue Israel. He will do it. It has already begun. In recent years, you think about this, Jews have been returning. Actually, God 
reestablish the nation of Israel in, I think, 49, or what was it, 49? Is that when it was, or 48? 48. Re- there you go. He reestablished Israel as a nation. But the interesting thing is, is that from that moment to now, Jews have been coming from all over. They were scattered, Dispora Jews. They were scattered all over the world. They had been making their way back to Jerusalem. Now, have you ever even considered or thought about why they're all amassing there? Could it be that God is preparing them for the return of Jesus Christ as he is preparing us, the church, for the return of Jesus Christ? It makes sense to have them all localized, doesn't it? It's interesting to ponder. But I can tell you this. You know, I am a reformed guy, but I have a really hard time with aspects of covenant theology when it comes to the rejection of Israel. I don't think that we can make a case in Scripture that God is through with Israel and that Israel was always a metaphor for the church. I don't think that's right to do that to Scripture. So I reject that aspect of their theology. He has a plan for Israel. He is coming for Israel. It says in Scripture over and over. Seven, lastly, Jesus established his reign. When the arrival of Jesus had been announced, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Matthew 2, 1 and and 2. Jesus arrived as King Jesus. Jesus is the king of the Jews and Jesus is the king over all creation. God has appointed Jesus as king, Matthew 28, verse 18. And we are awaiting or waiting for his inauguration. It is, in a sense, like a presidency. I know king is monarchy, but in a way, it's like a presidency. This is how you want to think of it. When a new president is elected, he doesn't immediately move into the White House and take office. And I certainly wish our Senate would do that now, right? He doesn't immediately take office in the White House. He has to wait until January, doesn't he? When Jesus came the first time, he was appointed as king. By God, we didn't hail him as king. We hailed him as a false prophet and all that, and we killed him on a cross. But God hailed him as king. He was appointed when he came around the first time. And when Jesus returns, he will take his throne and establish his kingdom. It's like he's the president-to-be, and there is coming a time when he will return and take office. That's coming. Now, Jesus spoke of the day of his return when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of glory. Matthew 25, 31. John wrote, every eye shall see him. Every eye, literally. Revelation 1, 7. The prophetic utterance spoken by God to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16 concerning David's seed having an everlasting throne and kingdom has a double fulfillment. Primarily, it referred to Solomon's temple. But ultimately, and finally, it speaks of Christ's earthly reign, as Zechariah 6.12 shows us. The day must come when all things will be subjected under Jesus, or unto Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.28. The psalmist spoke of his throne as an enduring throne. Psalm 89, verse 4, 29, and 36. God promises that his earthly throne and kingdom are to continue forever and that the one to occupy it shall be David's seed, his rightful son. 1 Chronicles 17.11. The genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 support the relationship of Jesus to David. He is descended from David. Jesus' kingdom is a literal kingdom, which means that it cannot be realized apart from the incarnation. It is a literal place, just as Jesus was and is a literal person. His kingdom will not be invisible, but visible, and it will be perfect. God's will will finally be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom of glory and his throne was God's first promise through the mouth of the angel Gabriel to Mary. We read it earlier, Luke Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
The fact of the matter is, is that men have been trying to establish a perfect everlasting kingdom like this since nearly the beginning of time. From the Tower of Babel to Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar to the Roman Caesars to the Fuhrer. What do you think ISIS is attempting to do in Iraq and Syria today? They are trying to establish a caliphate, a kingdom for Allah, a perfect kingdom where Sharia law is 100% observed. But they will fail just as every other group throughout history to establish a kingdom, a perfect kingdom. They will fail. ISIS will fail just as everyone else has ever failed. Why? Because a perfect kingdom demands a perfect king and Jesus is the only perfect king. Now let's summarize and wrap it up. Seven examples of Jesus' work He revealed God to man. He revealed man to man. He came to redeem man. He defeated death and the devil. He rescues the whole creation. He restores Israel. And Jesus established his reign. From the moment he appeared, he is king and he is king now. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? Aren't you glad Jesus came? Only he could do the things we've talked about. And Christmas is about remembering how Jesus came to us. But it's also about remembering, you know, it, it, is, it is about, it has that component of remembering Jesus coming to us as a baby in the manger and all that stuff. That's kind of Christmas. But it also has to do with remembering what he did for us, what he'll do for Israel, what he'll do for creation, and everything else that we've talked about. It's about remembering the kingship of Jesus. Christmas is about remembering the kingship of Jesus. He is your king. And it's about remembering that he is coming to establish his throne and kingdom. The king is coming back. And the question I have for you is that are you living in a way that reflects that reality? The reality of all the things that we've talked about. Do you live in such a way that honors Jesus as king?